Personally, I won't be preaching in the dark today, even if it isn't as easy to see from over here. In the um, year in which I was growing up in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is one of many churches known as a Reformed Church, it uh, was often the case that at the end of October, the Lord's Day preceding the 31st of the month, we would have a Reformation sermon or address that uh, was not because we honor the Reformation in and of itself, but because the Reformation itself honored the purity of the gospel. And we celebrated that fact. And though I don't see many churches doing that as often today, I would like to, in some small measure, renew that tradition. I think it's a good one. Uh, as I address you uh, this afternoon on the need for continuing Reformation in the church, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans, the first chapter, where we'll read the first 17 verses as our text. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant, separated unto the gospel of God, which he promised afore through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, was born seed of David according to the flesh who was declared to be Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship unto obedience of faith among all the nations, for his name's sake, among whom are ye also called to be Jesus Christ, to all that are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son. How unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I may be prospered by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established. That is, that I with you may be comforted in you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. For I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, and was hindered heretofore that I might have some fruit in you also, even as in the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you also that are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is revealed a righteousness of God from faith unto faith. As it stands written, the righteous shall live by faith. And thus far the reading of God's word. I chose this text because I suppose many of you already know. This was the text that Martin Luther said as he struggled with his own sin and the weight of his failure to achieve peace with God that when he was reading one day in the castle, it finally, like a light from heaven, dawned upon him that the problem was that he was struggling to be right with God in his own effort. 
and to do what the church had prescribed rather than to trust the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as that verse, the quotation from Habakkuk, came to him that the just shall live by faith, he finally understood the gospel. He finally understood what it was to have good news from God instead of the very bad news that he'd been living under. What do we mean by the Reformation? Why do we speak of the Reformation and why do we call our churches Reformed churches? Well, I suppose it would be good to go back past the 1500s Uh, much, much further back to the days of the New Testament, even back beyond that to the days of the Old Testament, to remind ourselves that the church, God's people, has always been in need of reform. Reform is something that is constantly called for as we are the people of God in this world, wish to serve him with greater consistency and obedience. Even as far back as the law of God, In the Mosaic Law, we see that God prescribes certain times of covenant renewal and reformation for his people every seven years, and especially in the Jubilee 50th year. The people were to be renewed in their faith and to remember God's word and to reform their ways. We read in the Old Testament the story of Josiah's reform of the temple as when the temple is being cleaned, they come across a book of the law. I know this is hard for us to imagine in our day where Bibles are plentiful, but they actually came across a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the covenant apparently, and there realized what it is that God had wanted from them and how they needed to change their ways. And the subsequent war on idolatry that arose from Josiah's recovery of the law. We read of Malachi, the prophet, the last prophet of the Old Testament, calling the people of God to reformation, God's declaration that he would purify his people and purify the temple. Come to the New Testament, we look at Paul's correction of the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church had so many problems in it doctrinal, ethical, interpersonal that I think we would be inclined today to suggest that it was maybe not a church of Christ at all. And yet Paul called upon the Corinthians as saints of God and corrected their errors and called for reformation in their midst. We think of John's letter, actually Jesus' letters through John to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. And the constant refrain there is the the call to repentance and to change and to obedience before God. That the ways of the church would be reformed, that Christ would be honored as the Lord of the church. So throughout covenant history, from beginning to end, you can see the appropriateness of what has become the motto of the Reformation churches. Reformation churches are called reformed because they are reformed and always reforming. They have been changed by God, they have been purified, they have been reformed, and yet the call for greater reformation is always there. The Reformed churches are those which have arisen at Reformation, an event that took place, a series of events that's in the 16th century, especially in Northern Europe. The Reformed churches are particularly the Calvinistic branch of the churches that come out of the Protestant Reformation. What we see in the Protestant Reformation is nothing less than the dramatic biblical revival of God's work in the 16th century. The Reformation, in a sense, 
began on All Souls Day, actually the eve of All Souls Day, which comes to us in English translation as Halloween, Hallow's Eve, October 31st in the year 1517. It was on that day that Martin Luther, who was presently a professor of biblical studies at the newly established University of Wittenberg in Germany, it was on that day that he announced a disputation on indulgences, stating his argument for this disputation and what we call 95 Theses. I'm afraid that the 95 Theses have taken on a life of their own. It's really kind of literary metaphor anymore, but we, we must lose sight of what those Theses were all about. Martin Luther was not acting defiantly when he nailed the theses to the door of the uh, castle church. That would have been nice. I mean, it makes for a great movie and it really stirs our souls. But Luther was doing nothing out of the ordinary. In that day, it was the common practice among academicians to debate with each other. And they would state the subject of a debate and what their position was in the form of theses. Luther had 95, it turned out. It wasn't prescribed that you had to have 95. But he had 95 theses on indulgences that he said, I stand prepared, ready to debate. And he nailed those to the castle church door on the 31st of October in the year 1517. Those theses were very academic in character, if you read them. They were not excited in tone, but they did, as it turns out they did touch the very nerve of Roman Catholic theology. Within two weeks of Luther doing that, every and religious center in Europe was stirring with agitation because they marveled, you must look at the significance of it, they marveled that an obscure Augustinian monk, and he was obscure, and he was at an obscure university, that an obscure man like Luther had challenged the holy trade of the Pope himself. But of course the 95 Theses were not at all intended by Luther as a call to reformation. Not at that point they weren't. They were simply the proposal of a university professor to discuss the theology of indulgences in light of the errors and the abuses which had grown up over the centuries in connection with them. What was an indulgence? An indulgence was the release of a sinner from the penance that was necessary to keep him out of purgatory or to release him for some period of time from purgatory. Remember that a priest would impose penance on the people. And when that penance was performed, the penance would diminish your time in purgatory. Medieval Christians had very little fear of hell, interestingly enough, because they believed that if they died forgiven and blessed by a Roman Catholic priest, they would be guaranteed access to heaven no matter what, because the key to heaven was held by the church and the Pope in particular. And so they would escape everlasting damnation. However, there were those post-baptismal sins of theirs that would bring a temporal penalty from God and which had to be cleansed away. Justice had to be performed before they could then enter into heaven. These penalties for their post-baptismal sins were imposed and meted out 
by the priest of the church, unremitted and over their lifetime, and would store up for them a period of time of punishment in purgatory. The details of the punishments of purgatory were vividly portrayed by the church. We see some rendition of that in Dante's The Inferno and Purgatorio and so forth. Purgatory was a dreaded place, but at least it wasn't going to be hell forever. And thus arose the sale of indulgences, a diminishing of your time in purgatory if you were willing to purchase from the Pope the pardon that he would extend. To give you an example of what this meant, pilgrims who would make a trip to the relics of the castle church in Wittenberg. Uh, That's where Luther nailed his theses. If you came to the relics of that church, you were reckoned to have earned a remission from purgatory for 1,902,202 years and 70 days. I'm not sure how they figured that out. The sale of indulgences to finance pet projects by the Pope had grown into an outrageous scandal as Luther saw it. And upon reflection, and particularly upon biblical investigation, Luther came to be convinced that the sale of these indulgences was actually contrary to scripture and contrary to reason and certainly contrary to church tradition. Indeed, as Luther said, indulgences encouraged a notion of what we would call cheap grace, whereby a man could continue in his sin unmindful of Christ and God's forgiveness if he just planned simply to buy his way out of the suffering of purgatory by his good works in the purchase of an indulgence. Now by challenging indulgences, Luther was actually, though I think he only faintly understood it at the time, challenging of salvation as was advocated by the Romanist church. Most immediately, he was challenging the authority of the Pope, of course, especially in the Pope's alleged prerogative to shut the gate of hell and open the gate of heaven to anyone he wished. Now, both the official hierarchy of the church and the everyday religious practice of European Christians were simultaneously being undermined by that very bold stroke of Luther's then. And as it turns out, the Christian church would never be the same, and Western Europe would never be the same. And so Luther had disputations, first within his Augustinian order. Uh, One was held in Heidelberg in the year 1518. And then he had disputations with papal authorities, one in Augsburg in 1518, another in Leipzig in 1519. His published accounts of these disputations, these debates with Rome, Uh, were spread about so people could judge for themselves on the basis, not on the basis of what some man had told them. Luther placed, you see, the ordinary Christian man and woman on their own theological feet, trusting that every one of them was a priest before God and was able to find the truth in reading the Bible for themselves. And it was for that reason that Luther's followers multiplied If he had not believed that, if he had not put the Bible into the hands of the ordinary man, then he would have been shut out and blackballed by the church forever. Finally, in the year 1520, Luther was excommunicated by the Pope. 
And then at the Diet of Worms in 1521, he was outlawed by the Emperor Charles V. And it was there that Luther, being called upon to recant his views and establish his freedom within the kingdom, asked for another day to consider and then came back the next morning and offered a renowned answer that I'm sure you've heard, but it's stirring every time we consider it. Luther stood before the Diet and the Imperial Majesty and the Lordships gathered there. And he says, you have demanded of me a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture or by manifest reason, since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of the Pope or of councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves. I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can't do other. God help me. Amen. Luther's dramatic stand against both the Pope and the Emperor now fired the imagination of Europe. His sole support, remember, was the written word of God in Scripture. His only hope, he says, his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. Over the next 25 years, Luther published book after book written in vivid German for the ordinary Christian reader. He translated the Bible into German so that it would be accessible to his fellow men, thus enabling them to see for themselves the truth of his arguments. In the year 1529, at the Diet of Spire, Emperor Charles V attempted to curb the Lutheran movement by force now. However, it was at that point that some of the princes of Germany, the German states, stood up to take protest. And from that time on, those who stood against the Roman Catholic Church were designated those who protested, Protestants. The movement which had attempted to reform Catholicism from within was now separated off from the church and became known as the Protestant Reformation. It fostered a reformed church that would be true to the scripture, true to the doctrines of God's saving grace. That movement split Christian Europe in two. It gave rise to churches known as evangelical or Protestant, and in particular, three traditions have arisen out of that movement in Germany. We have the Lutheran tradition, found particularly in that day in Germany and Scandinavia, the Calvinist tradition, found in the churches of Switzerland, France, Holland, and Scotland, and then eventually the Anglican Church in England. Because the Protestant outlook encompassed a reformed view of knowledge and authority, how we know what we do, a reformed view of God's saving work with man, a reformed view of man's place within God's kingdom, that movement brought not just a change in the church, but lasting social, political, and economic changes in Europe as well. For you see, the Reformation brought an entire entirely new and whole world and life view for the Christian. The heart of that world and life view, the heart of that outlook, was primarily the rediscovery of the gospel of God's saving work in Christ 
a truth which could liberate the heart from any theology that obscured God's grace and from any practice or any custom that tended to corrupt it. It was in the Protestant Reformation then, nearly 500 years ago, that God began reviving his work in Northern Europe. Why was the Protestant Reformation necessary? We have to ask that, especially in our day, because one, we're so far distant from it, nearly 500 years, that we begin to wonder whether anything that took place that long ago could really be that important to us. We need to ask the question why it was necessary, because in our day and age, to my shock, the saddening of my heart, there are people who are talking now as though some kind of ecumenical relationship with Romanism might be perfectly acceptable. Haven't Catholics learned their lesson? Isn't the Pope a nice guy? There are those who are actually promoting in our day and age, as you know from the reading of your last issue of Antithesis, there are those who are promoting a return from the Protestant faith back into the Roman Catholic communion. Why was the Protestant Reformation necessary, and is it necessary today? It absolutely is. You see, the Protestants had more than a minor disagreement on some obscure point or two with the Romanist church. Just listen to what the Protestants rejected. They rejected indulgences. They rejected relics, rosaries, holy water, prayer for the dead, sacraments that were not taught in the Bible, transubstantiation, worship by superstitious rites and in an unknown language, the celibacy of priests, the confession made to priests, penances, the treasury of merit, purgatory, works of supererogation, the mediation of Mary, the mediation of the saints, the authority of the Pope, and the merit of good works. That's not an obscure point or two. That's the whole of Christianity. What you have between Romanism and Protestantism is two different religions, both claiming the name Christian and one fraudulent. I think three major points can be distilled from the protest that were issued by the reformers. One, they insisted upon what they said in Latin, sola gratia, only the grace of God gives us hope of salvation. Two, sola scriptura, only scripture is authoritative for telling us God's will. And three, the priesthood of all believers. Sola gratia, sola scriptura, and the priesthood of all believers. Those major biblical themes made the Protestant Reformation a necessity. To understand this, let me take you a step back and explain what the Roman Catholic view of justification is. The Bible teaches us, contrary to Rome, that even the good works of believers in Jesus Christ do not earn eternal life by any intrinsic merit in them. I hope you understand that. I hope that when you pray to God, that you ask him to accept you not only in forgiving others, but to accept your good works for the sake of Jesus Christ, because there is nothing inherently meritorious about any good that you do, even as a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ. Romanism didn't teach that. Romanism taught that there is what was called a congruous merit, a favorable quality 
that attended the good works done by unbelievers even before their conversion. And this congruous merit moves the heart of God to bestow divine grace upon the unbeliever because the unbeliever is trying to do good. John Calvin was horrified by that teaching. There are no good works done by the unregenerate. Do we understand that? The Bible couldn't be clear. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Romans 8.8 They that are in the flesh cannot please God. There is no favorable quality attending the work of unbelievers. Romanism went beyond that, though. It further taught the doctrine of condign merit, congruous merit for unbelievers, condign merit for believers. Condign merit is the value which attaches to the good works done after your conversion with the help of grace, but which by their proper value would entitle the believer to eternal life, according to Rome. However, the blood of Christ is necessary to be added to that. Nevertheless, there is a condign and genuine merit in what they do. John Calvin said there is no deserving merit, even in the works of the regenerate. Listen to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As regenerate believers receiving the gift of faith, we have nothing to boast in our works. You see, Rome was teaching what we now call synergism. God and the sinner work together to bring about salvation. The merit of works was introduced into man's justification before God rather than having the sinner trust the alien righteousness of Christ in him alone. Indeed, Rome went so far as to define justification as God's infusing the sinner, subjectively transforming the sinner with righteousness. And on the basis of that infused change in the sinner, he would gain a right standing with God. In which case, justification is based upon something in me rather than entirely upon my Savior whom I trust. In short, Rome taught men that they could save themselves by utilizing the merit of Christ, but that they must merit the merit of Christ. They must add to the work of Christ in order to be saved. Well, that leads then to Rome's view of salvation through confession of sin and the satisfaction of our own sins. Romanist theology teaches that saving repentance involves confession of all of our sins to a priest who, in God's place, assigns works of penance to us that can satisfy the justice of God. In baptism, the eternal penalty of our sins was removed, but the temporal penalties of our sins, for which we will suffer in purgatory, after baptism, are merely lessened by the work of Christ. And only through the help of penance, works that we do adding to the cross of Christ, can we escape those temporal penalties. 
then we can reach what was called second pardon from God, post-baptismal pardon, based on our own good works. Indulgences would supply what we fail to earn by ourselves, because indulgences distribute the merit of Christ and the merit of the martyrs to us. Because, you see, the martyrs in Christ had good works of supererogation. They went over and above what they needed to do. And that meant that there was a treasury, an excess merit held, I don't know why, but held by the Bishop of Rome. And he had the right then, as were, holding this bank account, this treasury, to distribute it to anyone he wished to do so. The excess merit built up by the works of supererogation could then ease your time in purgatory if, of course, you paid the appropriate price for the indulgence. How could you defend such views? I want you to see that the errors of Rome are all a piece. They are all tied together. The only way Rome could defend such blasphemous ideas was to appeal to the authority of tradition and to make the voice of the Pope on a par with the Scripture. Then, of course, they'd be able to answer the reformers who appealed to Scripture against them. The Roman Catholic Church found it necessary to exalt church to the position of an infallible interpreter of the Bible. And thus, being the infallible interpreter in actual practice, church tradition became on a par with Scripture. actually lorded it over God's own word. Interestingly, Paul the Apostle in Galatians 1, those of you who have been at Bible study recently know this, Paul the Apostle declared that the views taught by the Roman church were accursed of God, even if taught by an angel from God. If an angel appears and teaches these things, let him be set apart for destruction, Paul said. And so Rome, not wishing to come under that condemnation, had to appeal to something else, church tradition and the authority of an infallible pope. Christ himself in Matthew 15 condemned human tradition that supplants the word of God, quoting Isaiah to the effect that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. For by their traditions, they undo the very word of God. By contrast, the reformers looked to scripture and scripture alone, sola scriptura, for their theological authority. They were quick to distinguish between the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 2. They were not willing to have anything added to God's word, even as Moses declared in Deuteronomy chapter 4. They were very mindful of the warning of Jeremiah 23. Be careful of the prophets who speak a vision out of their own heart and not from the word of the Lord. They knew, as Paul said, that their faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, to understand and really appreciate, as I hope you do today, the Protestant Reformation, you need to see that they didn't seek theological innovation in theological renovation. They only wanted a return to the purity of biblical teaching. And so Rome was in a very awkward place, having taught things contrary to the Bible and then having to prop up their authority with an infallible pope and the traditions of the church. The Roman church 
had to now draw a sharp distinction between the holy priesthood and the mundane layman. Because at this point, Luther and his followers could put the Bible in the hands of men and say, read for yourself, is what they're saying true about tradition? Is what they're saying true about the Pope? Is what they are saying true about justification and the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel? And at that point, the Roman Church, you're not going to believe this, but it is true, my friends, the Roman Catholic Church put the Bible on the index of books that laymen were not allowed to read. Because the Bible was subject to misinterpretation and error, Luther and his followers show us no layman should read the Bible, but should rather hear it interpreted infallibly by a priest who would represent the voice of Mother Rome. The priest became not only a mediator of God's grace through the sacraments, but a mediator of the knowledge of God through the Bible. And if the layman would not hear the priest and not receive the sacrament of the priest, the layman would not stand a chance before God. Obviously, that placed the priest in a privileged position, and obviously it opened the door to tyranny over the souls of men. You'll read in 1 Peter, the second chapter, quotation from Exodus 19 that tells us that all of God's people are priests. All of God's people go before the very throne of God through their one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. That all of God's people stand on a par before him regardless of their vocation in life. There is no sacred and secular distinction to be observed according to the Protestant Reformation. We are all priests, and all of our callings are holy callings, and all of our work is pursued for the sake of the kingdom of God and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. And that's why all occupations are equal. The preacher is not in a closer position to the truth or a closer position to God just because he has seminary training, just because he stands in the pulpit. And I hope you remember that today. Don't put your preachers on a pedestal. Don't. They are only servants, and you are servants, and servants of the same Lord, and through the same agency of direction, the Scripture. Every believer has the right and the duty to interpret the Scriptures for himself. All members of the Church of Jesus Christ participate in the ministry and the government of the Church. Though there is a divine right of Church government, it is not one imposed on the people, but a rise of the people. And the Pope, to put it very bluntly, is not supreme over anyone. He's not supreme even over the Church in Rome, much less supreme over all of Christendom. And so the Protestant Reformation had to drive home sola gratia, had to back that up with sola scriptura, and back that up with the priesthood of every believer. I guess you can tell I'm pretty excited about the Reformation. If I didn't believe these truths, and I don't say this for you know to have some kind of arch uh, drama for you today, I mean it from the heart. If I didn't believe these things, I wouldn't be a preacher. I wouldn't be a pastor. These things make all the difference in the world. Though I did not have an experience like unto Luther's, the fact is my heart goes out as I read about Luther's experience of knowing the emancipating effect of the gospel 
To know that my salvation does not depend upon the mediate man, not upon the sacraments of the church, not upon my confession to a priest, not upon my own merit and good works, but only based on the grace of God that I embrace in faith, which itself is a gift from him. And it's just because I so love the precious truths of the Reformation and what that Reformation means that today I'd like to end by telling you I'm afraid the Reformation may die. You say, well, when did the Reformation die, Pastor Bonson? Well, in one sense, the Reformation died almost immediately. It died in some churches of the Radical Reformation, churches that we now call Anabaptist in their tradition. For you see, in the Anabaptist sects, of Europe, There was a denial of God's covenant grace, and that's why they would not baptize infants. There was a denial of the divine right of church government. There was an affirmation of a mythical view of piety contrary to obedience to the law of God. There was a renunciation of the world rather than the claim that the world belonged to Christ and needed to be transformed for his glory. In that sense, the Reformation was blunted and put aside almost immediately. But the Reformation didn't just die in the Anabaptist sects, which have continued with us today in various communions and denominations. I'm afraid that the Reformation is dying daily in our day when the ecumenical movement and other forces like unto it wish to soften the antithesis with Rome today. I want to assure you, it's not my pugnacious debating nature that makes me say we must exalt that antithesis and guard it. It's my love for the Lord Jesus Christ and the purity of his word. Rome has not essentially changed. Rome declared that what it said at the time of the Reformation was infallible and could not change. Declared it to be irreformable truth. Rome has not changed. Precious truths of God's word are still worth upholding even at the cost of unity, even at the cost of being considered troublemakers in the religious world, we need to guard the antithesis against the destructive error of Rome. I think the Reformation is dying in our culture more generally, too. We have enjoyed the fruits of the Protestant Reformation, especially as the Puritans from England came over and in New England began this country with a Calvinistic, covenantal understanding of Christianity. Christianity and the Protestant Reformation are dying in our culture as we see what is really a works righteousness understanding of how to be right with God promulgated throughout our culture. You know, you don't have to be a theologian, you don't have to speak in theological jargon uh, to be caught up in the heresy of works righteousness. How can we be thought to live in a Protestant culture where the general populace all around us has essentially a pagan view of God and a pagan understanding of salvation that if I'm just good enough, when I get to heaven, God will let me in? The Reformation dies in the softening of antithesis to Rome. It dies in our general culture as people don't understand the need for God's grace. But it dies in our churches too. How often have I seen local Protestant churches have their little statement of faith? And there you will find this deadly remark that justification is on the basis of our faith. 
Justification is not on the basis of our faith. Do you understand the difference? Justification is on the basis of God's grace in Christ. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we apprehend by faith. It is by grace through faith, not based on faith. If we're based on faith, which for all of us, of course, is inconsistent, is stained by sin. If it was upon anything in ourselves, even our own faith, we would not be right with God. How often have I heard Arminian brothers in the Lord make the huge mistake of thinking that a decision, a free decision made for Jesus, can be added to his work and turn it into something effective in their lives, as though we can add to the merit of Christ by our decision to follow him. No, the Reformation dies, don't you see, not just in Romanism, but in the Arminian churches of our land as well. The Reformation dies in our own churches when church tradition and when the comfort that we can get from messages takes the place of exegesis and the interpretation of God's word. When we think of worship services as aimed to make us feel good rather than to bring us into the holy presence of God, to praise him and to hear his word declared for our Reformation. The Reformation dies in our churches when independent churches grow up which are governed in practice by little popes, all in the name of opposing the big pope of Rome. They all have their own little popes rather than the declared, ordained government of the church as we find in the New Testament. The Reformation dies in our churches when there's a lack of church discipline, when there is no encouragement of personal holiness, when the whole idea is to make us think everything's all right with God if we just go through the rituals of the church and show up on time. But the Reformation has died or is dying in our personal lives, too. It's not just in history, not just in our general culture, not just in our churches, but it dies in us. When there is an us individually, and I speak to each and every one of you sitting in the audience now and to myself, when there is a failure on our part to study the scriptures seriously, and we depend for our religious knowledge upon our past, some favored teacher or some elder to mediate the truth to us, what kind of reformed churches allow that to take place? The Reformation dies in our individual lives in our failure to act as priests before God because we will not consecrate our every effort for the advance of God's kingdom. When we continue to think of the religious things we do and then the secular things we do, rather than seeing us as children belonging to a kingdom that encompasses everything, we are part and parcel of the family of God, and God owns everything, and therefore everything is done to his service. The Reformation dies in our lives when we indulge in cheap grace. Rome has its indulgences, and Protestants have theirs. When we indulge in cheap grace, thinking we can be easily forgiven, and we don't need to show a changed life and a renewed life before God. This Reformation Day, I'm going to ask you to join me in praying that God will revive his work again, lest the precious truths of the Protestant Reformation die out in our own experience, in our own churches, our individual lives. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for the purity of the gospel. We thank you that you've sent us good news, not bad news. We thank you that somehow by your grace, marvelously and amazingly, you've been willing to extend pardon and salvation to us through the work of Christ your Son. And we do embrace that by faith without anything in our hand to offer to you, without any hope of pardon for any accomplishment or achievement or good that we have done, without any hope of following a ritual that will make us right with you, but simply trusting your promises, simply laying hold of your son, simply making our only hope your loving kindness. And we pray for the sake of Christ and his honor and for the comfort of the good news that has come to us, that you would fire our hearts with a desire to defend these precious truths against every encroachment. We pray that you would not allow some human mediator to get in the way of our knowledge of your promise and our testing of every teaching that comes to us by the holiness of your word. We pray that you would not allow us to soften the antithesis with those fellowships that declare that there is some merit in the church to be distributed by human priests. We pray that you would fire our souls with righteous indignation against those, even angels from heaven, that might declare that anything could be added to the merit of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would not simply look without for the need of continuing reformation, but today you would help us to look within, that we would become true students of your word day by day that we would truly act as priests in this world, representing you before men and performing holy service in all of our vocations before you. We pray that you would bring about true reformation in our lives, that we would not simply think we can appeal to your mercy and not have to turn from our sins. God, we do pray that you would revive your work in our day for the sake of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.